Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Wrapping up the year 2023, some of the shows and topics that we covered. And today, it's an expert on mental health and suicide prevention. And we pay tribute to the late president of the United Steelworkers. Welcome to the Friday, December 29th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Well, if you've been listening for the last week and week and a half, what we've been doing is highlighting some of the uh, the most uh, downloaded shows and the most impactful shows here on America's Workforce. And one of them was a segment, actually two segments I did back in September with Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. We call her Dr. Sally. She's very, very well known in the trades. Dr. Sally is a uh, noted psychologist, a program trainer, and speaker. She joined us on the Suicide Prevention Week and she talked about improving awareness, especially in the building trades, and how to improve your local union's ability to provide resources to those in need. And there are many. Suicide in the trades is about four times higher than the national, uh, than the national statistics on that, the national population. A little background on Dr. Sally. She is a psychologist by education, and she got into this field following the death of her brother by suicide. And when that happened, she said, oh, my God, what did I miss? What could I have done to help him? And that's when she, you know, put the pedal to the metal and said, you know what, I got to do something about this. And she is uh, she is well sought after in the trade. She works with a number of unions, and she'll talk about that on the show because she uh, she is uh, she's very good at what she does. In fact, if you talk to anybody in the trades, you mentioned Dr. Sally said, oh, I know her. I know her. In fact, we have a meeting with her, and she's been very, very effective with our union. So Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, Google that name, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Later in the show, we are going to replay a segment that uh, we aired. This was uh, early October, I believe, and this was in honor of the late Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers. He served in that capacity for about four years my gosh, almost 50 years as a steel worker. What a great guy. And I'll tell you, this was a shock to me. Apparently, um, he told a couple of people back in the spring that uh, he was terminal and uh, he passed away. And I'll tell you, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks, ton of bricks. Tom was always open and very uh, caring about his workers and labor in general. So uh, during his work to find a solution to improving America's infrastructure. This is just one example. Tom offered multiple takes on the need for investment. With investment in the workers, he said, America would improve workers' lives and lift the strength of the middle class. Not only, not only was Tom known for his ability to rally his members and negotiate, but he was also a very skilled writer and covered several issues within the labor movement during his time. There was a story, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this while well, we'll replay the segment, but this is part of the segment that we aired a couple of months ago, and it involves uh, negotiations at a tire company in the South. And I'll tell you, in the South, it's ridiculous how difficult it can be 
to uh, not only <laughs> get a union started, but get the first contract. That first contract is so darn difficult. And Tom did an op-ed piece, and he just put it all together. And that's what he was so profound about. He, he really, really cared about his workers. And uh, there's so many good things posted on the USW website. If you go to usw.org, you can see videos of Tom, and it was it's just amazing. So I think this is the best way to button up 2023 because we lost a great guy here with Tom Conway, also a proud sponsor of America's Workforce. So we're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to check in with Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. The Iron Workers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at USW dot O-R-G. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at CWA-Union dot O-R-G. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBalladSystems.com to learn more. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Suicide prevention, one of the big topics that we covered here on America's workforce in 2023 and uh, September was suicide prevention month. And also there was one week dedicated to suicide prevention and on 
One of those shows, we talked to Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. Let's listen here on America's Workforce. Yesterday was the start of National Suicide Prevention Week. And uh, this week, we're going to pepper as many shows as we can with experts to deal with this issue. And joining us on our live line right now is Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. And her website is sallyspencerthomas.com. She's a clinical psychologist, inspirational speaker, podcaster as well. And uh, she writes, I see the world of mental health from many perspectives. And we're going to talk about that. And Dr. Sally has a uh, personal story to share on how she got involved in uh, suicide prevention. And she'll talk about it on the show. So, Dr. Sally, is it best to call you Dr. Sally? How, how do you want me to, to address you here on the show? Uh, you call me whatever you want, Ed. Dr. Sally, sign, Sally, sign, whatever works for you. Okay, good, 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 good. Well, what I like to do, especially with new guests, is to uh, get familiar with you, who you are, how you got into this field, and obviously, a little bit later on, what you do. There are right things to do, and there are wrong things to do. I want to talk about all of that, and you've got incredible credentials here. I was looking at all the things that you have published over the years, co-founder of Construction Working Minds Program Training and Summit co-founder of the award-winning Man Therapy campaign. I know this is very male-oriented here. Co-editor of Guts, Grits, and Grind, a book series about men's mental health. And we have a lot of the trades that listen to the show, and suicide is pretty prevalent in the trades for a number of issues that we've discussed. But Dr. Sally, talk to me about your story. I understand uh, it's very personal. I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Yeah, thanks, Ed. So, Well, I'm a psychologist by training, and I had been in the field of mental health uh, quite a long time. Um, My before and after moment happened when my brother died by suicide on December 7, 2004. He was uh, a business leader, a father of two. I know by all external counts, people saw success and magic, and he was athletic, and he also fought a lot of really uh, crushing depression behind the scenes that no one really saw. Um, a depression that ultimately proved to be fatal. And the last time we spoke, um, we knew he was in trouble. Uh, He had had a really rough number of months. He had suffered some business losses. He had been estranged from the family, but he came back to us. And um, the last time we saw each other, he really told me that what was really driving his hopelessness was that the world was not accepting of him and uh, of living with a mental health condition. And he called it his madness. Um, and so, you know, my my charge, my calling, if you will, after his death was to make sure that other people, especially other men who might be falling through the cracks, who might be suffering in silence, know that there are there are pathways through this. There are other people that have gone through similar things. There are things that can help you through your pain. And to really try to, to eliminate the bias and the prejudice and the discrimination that are are our workplaces in particular have about people who are living with mental health issues or who are living with suicidal thoughts. Did he try to get help during this time? It sounds like this was going on for quite some time. He actually did seek a lot of help. So unlike the kind of prototypical person who dies by suicide, who's a a man in the working age who has one attempt and it's fatal, that that kind of prototypical person uh, usually has not stepped foot in any type of mental health resource. My brother had been seeing uh, therapists and psychiatrists off and on since he was 19. So he tried a lot of different things, uh, self-help, medication, therapies, all kinds of things his entire adult life. Uh, the last episode that he had was particularly brutal. 
um, and it was very public. So while he was able to maybe hide some of his symptoms from, you know, the inner circle people knew, but from his clients and some of his friends, the last episode he had was pretty public, and he was just, you know, very ashamed at that. So that obviously propelled you to do something. Can you yes. give us some details? Because that well, obviously that was it was game changing. It was life changing yeah. for you. This was your brother. You, I mean, you grew up with right. him, and you you lived right. through that time of of mental anguish, and then he took his life. What did you do? Can you explain that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that are wondering. Gee, I mean, this happened to me. Maybe maybe right. I should listen. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. What did you do personally? Well. As we were all just reeling from this loss, he was a very, a very special person to a lot of people. Uh, we called him the Pied Piper. Just people loved him. They were drawn to him. So his death had a kind of a tsunami effect on our family and his circle of friends and colleagues. And literally on the night of his death, his um, good friend Sean called my brother's wife and said, "Oh my God, what do we do?" And she said, "Let's not be. Let's not let him be forgotten." And so just a month later, we pulled together and we were on conference calls and some of the time we were crying and some of the time we were laughing because my brother was really hilarious. Uh, and then we just resolved to do bold gap filling work and prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. And it was at that time that we started to do that research and find like, oh, my gosh, the people who are dying are working age men and they're not accessing mental health care and they're dying on first attempt. Where do we find them? They're out of the education system. We find them at work. And that was kind of this aha moment of a gap-filling place that the workplace is the most cross-cutting system we have to get these most at-risk people. And so we started to row in that space, and we developed programs and strategies and talks and all this stuff, but we really couldn't get in a lot of traction until we started to get a couple of um, clients in the area of construction and first responder work. And then things started to click. We saw people getting great results um, because they had uh, untapped issues. You know, they had gaps that were needing to be met about how to change this conversation, how to get people who are so tough, uh, so stoic and self-reliant to raise their hand and say, I need help. How do we get them to help each other? How do we make sure that their resources meet their needs? How do we change culture? Like these were big issues that a lot of these you know, male-dominated fields were having a really tough time doing. So once we got the case studies and then we had the data that showed that male-dominated industries, in particular construction and extraction and transportation and manufacturing, um, all had significantly elevated suicide risks. And now we know also elevated overdose risks. Um, there was a, a hunger for answers, uh, and that is really where the things have uh, taken off. So since you're zeroing in on a certain population, you mentioned the trades, construction workers, and I get it. We, we talk to a lot here on the show. I've been hosting this show for 25 years, and there's many that have come to the table. Many unions have developed their own programs, probably working with you. <laughs> that could be, could be very well the case. But it's that tough guy image, you know. Oh, you know what? I'll get through it. I don't need any help. I'm going to get through this. Not a problem. Just give me another beer. Okay, maybe, maybe some pills will help out. And then you mentioned first responders, and I think of that, oh, my gosh, there's a story, and I want to share this. I never talked about this on the show. This was about two, maybe three years ago. This was a policewoman who had just joined the force, and she saw a horrific, horrific tragedy where it was an individual who killed her own kids, and it was just, I mean, she was not ready for that. And the next day... She took her own life because it had such an mm-hmm. impact on her. Is, is this what you're seeing? Especially, especially, there's some horrific images out there 
that people, especially first responders, firefighters, police at sea. And I guess yeah. they need some kind of a release, don't they? Well, let me just address that particular situation you just described. It is very uncommon that there is just one event that happens and that flips someone over to take their life. There's often a precipitating event, but there's usually a lot that happened before that event. It's rarely just one thing. So my guess is that there were other things that that was just the tipping point for her. So I want to clear up that narrative because a lot of times people are like, they just snapped. Mm, Not so much. People don't just snap. There's usually a lot going on. You might not be privy to all the things that are going on. There's a lot going on before that moment. Um, So, yes, there's a lot of the tough-minded cultures uh, that have to be tough. For the work that they do, they have to be courageous. They have to be persevering. They have to endure a lot of pressure. Um, that's their superpower. It's not the everyday person that signs up for work like that. So this is the underbelly of that superpower. When you really value your toughness and your ability to solve problems and stick it out through really difficult things or face things courageously that other people will never face, um, your underbelly is that when you have a vulnerability like a mental health condition, a trauma, an addiction, uh, you know, all these things, it is very, very challenging to reach out. But here's the good news, and here is why I love working with the unions. You already have this value of we've got each other's back. We look out for each other. We advocate for each other's well-being. This is the core of who we are, and that works so well when it comes to promoting well-being because Mm -hmm. maybe I don't need to learn this about for myself, you might think, but I want to learn how to do it because I want to help somebody else. Well, guess what? If you're learning about things to help someone else, you'll learn about things to help yourself. Uh, So it's, it's a great way. It's a great door that gets opened, and we have just seen so much hunger, but also enthusiasm, especially for some of our folks that have lived through these things. They're in long-term recovery from alcoholism. They're, they have had trauma in their life. They have had a suicide attempt. They are in a place in their recovery now where it's all about making meaning. They want to give back, and they want to help the next person who's suffering to suffer less than they did, and they, learn, they, they share their life lessons. And they're not acting as counselors. They're not acting as therapists. They're just walking along a path um, with someone else who's so they're not so alone. It's some of the most inspiring work I have ever, ever been able to do. So I get the sense you work primarily with unions then. I mean, is that the, the bulk of your clientele today? Absolutely. Yeah. And certainly the ones that are scaling, like we've had these little pilot things that have happened with like the uh, United Association of Pipe Fitters and the Sheet Metal Air Rail Transportation Union. And now the iron workers, like we have these small pockets of things that happen because there's a, a visionary leader that gets involved and wants to make something go. And then it scales. Uh, so that's been super exciting, especially with the pipe fitters. We um, started with a very specialized program called the Veterans in Piping Program that helps our active duty military transition into a trade. And it went so well with this really small program that now we are scaling across, you know, hundreds of locals in the United States and Canada. So it's it's very cool. The, the, when I step back and think about the potential impact for all of this, it's not only the workers, it's their families, it's their communities that this spreads to. I am just so over overtaken with gratitude. It's funny you bring up the UA, the uh, pipe fitters. Uh, Mike Hazard, name his mm-hmm. name comes to a light here. Isn't he a great guy? He's my man. He's the dude. I, <laughs> I, I share a short, funny story about him because it's hilarious. It's hilarious and tragic at the same time, if that's possible. So okay. I had a I had a training 
in a fire station uh, for fire firefighters in the Columbus area. And it was a workplace training. It was a full day. And we're going around the room doing introductions. And it's this firefighter from this Ohio department and this firefighter from Cleveland and this firefighter from Cincinnati. And all of a sudden I get, yeah, I'm a pipe fitter from Idaho. And I'm like, one of these things is not like the other. And it was Mike Hazard. Um, and he was he had flown out after just Googling what's workplace suicide prevention happening. And he Googled and he flew out. And there he was in my training with a whole bunch of firefighters. And he said to me at the end of the training, he said, I don't know what yet we're going to do something with this. Um, they had experienced a loss that was very touching to that community. And uh, a couple of years later, he got it going on the Veterans and Piping program. And then he has been absolutely the Energizer Bunny behind scaling it throughout the UA. So Mike Hazard is a genius, uh, a visionary, and a, and a chess player all together. <laughs> he's a great leader in this space. And he's a big fan of the show, so he's probably smiling right now, Dr. Sally. <laughs> and he's also super humble. He's super humble. So, But, yeah, he and, and Nicole uh, Duke, who's been um, you know, the, the woman that gets all the stuff done that is his partner in crime here, the two of them, but the impact that they have had is just phenomenal. Good people. Definitely good people in the trades. Well, I'll tell you what, you, we have to take a quick break here. Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas joining us on our live line. She's a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster. We're talking about uh, suicide prevention. Yesterday was the start of Suicide Prevention Week. Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas on suicide prevention. We'll continue with her in another segment later in the show. A tribute to the late, great Tom Conway. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are Steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Are you an experienced mechanical insulator looking to take your career to the next level? Insulators Local 50 in Central Ohio has steady work for a number of years. Insulators Local 50 offers a total wage and benefits package that can't be beat. It's not just the competitive wages. Local 50 also provides medical, vision, and dental insurance with no paycheck deductions for you and your family. Don't miss out on the chance to secure your future. Join us at Insulators Local 50. Earn great pay and the best benefits. Visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF50 to fill out the online form and a Local 50 representative will call to begin the process. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. 
You can find more at ifpte.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up. Receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, where you can find more at ulagency.org. Let's uh, go back to the interview that I did back in September with Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, talking about suicide prevention, primarily dealing with the construction industry. All right, let's go back to our live line. Rejoin Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. SallySpencerThomas.com is her website. She's a clinical psychologist. We're talking about suicide prevention. What she does differently, she works with a lot of unions, primarily the sheet metal workers, the iron workers, and the pipe fitters. There's also some electricians and firefighters in there. And she's developed a very comprehensive program to uh, help people out because, especially in the trades, it's uh, anywhere between three to five times higher suicide, I'm talking about, than the general population. And a lot of that has to do with people that they're, they're, they're tough guys. They're tough guys. There's more females entering the profession, but it's still pretty much male-dominated. Same goes with firefighters, and they don't seek help. There is help out there. That's the important thing. Dr. Sally, I saw on your website how you are different, and obviously the unions love you. You are making a difference, and there are some programs that work, and there are some programs that work better than others, and obviously you do things a little bit better than others. Let's let's if we can get into some of the things that the do's and don'ts and programs and maybe that you should run away from. I, I don't know. How, how, are you, how do you see this? And, and maybe you can give us some details on what actually works for people. Go ahead. Oh, wow. OK, so first of all, I just also want to mention women in construction mm-hmm. also have high rates of suicide. When we look at all the other occupations, construction in particular, have um, have women have high rates of suicide in construction. So the women are also at risk in, in a lot of our unions as well. Um, I, I actually think I want to take this in, in addressing what unions can do that's particularly important and impactful. And I, and I mentioned this um, in the first segment that peer support is a really powerful opportunity within the unions. It's already connected to that core value of we look out for each other, we care about each other, the brothers and sisterhood, it matters greatly. It's the essence of who you are. Um, you can build formal peer support programs, and this is what we're seeing as the wave of the future that is definitely the gap-filling thing that we need in this chain of survival. Peers have equal status, so there's not like an authority figure that people are worried about. Is this going to impact my career or something that could give me you know, opportunities because of this? Peers have equal status, and they also have shared lived experience. So maybe they haven't gone through the exact same thing you've gone through, but they've gone through something similar. You know, maybe they've had a breakup and you're going through a divorce, or maybe they've had a loss or a health scare. They have some kind of shared life challenge or experience with a mental health condition. So that connection is profound for people. You know, and when we ask people, like, what's their likelihood of going to mental health services? You know, sometimes there's hesitation about time and money and are people going to understand me and is this really going to be helpful? But when it comes to a peer, like someone who's like me, but maybe a few steps ahead of me on the path of recovery, that seems like a pretty trustworthy person. So when we are developing these peer support programs, we look to recruit people that have maybe a natural inclination for listening and supporting people. 
they have that lived experience and they're well in well in the journey of their recovery. They've been at it for a while. They know a thing or two about the resources out there, and they're trustworthy with their peers. And then we train them. We train them on what the boundaries of peer support are, uh, how to understand the resources in a more deep way if they haven't already um, tried them out themselves. We talk about how to listen well, how to engage people in these difficult conversations, and know how to be a warm bridge into a next level of care if someone's in crisis or needs more formalized support. Um, this is the powerful way that unions can play a role in helping those folks that are falling through the cracks. They're just not able to reach out on their own, but they might talk to a trusted peer to start that first step into their recovery. So that's definitely mm-hmm. a do, and I wouldn't just do it willy-nilly. Um, there are definitely do's and don'ts within setting up a peer support program. Um, you know, some, some areas are worried about liability. Others are worried about, are we going to recruit the wrong people? And that's more than I can share in a short podcast, but Peer support is a definite do. <laughs> I noticed that there's some organizations that do what's called a canned approach. That something, oh, maybe it works somewhere and we're just going to kind of homogenize it and use it elsewhere. I get the sense in this conversation with you, Dr. Sally, that you pretty much, you got to get acquainted with the specific group. And I'm, let, Let's use for an example, iron workers. You go into the iron workers hall, you got to get acquainted with them and you kind of tailor the program. After after meeting with certain individuals, there is. Am, am I correct in assuming that? Oh, absolutely. You look at me, and I've got absolutely zero creds in terms of any of these tough-minded people's world. Like, absolutely zero. I'm a I'm a girly do-gooder. You know that is is not the same lane. And so I really do need to take time to listen, understand where the where their pain points are, also where their strengths are, what they're doing well, um, and then I. I reflect back what I hear. And so they know that I am really working hard to understand where they're at and what they want from this. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we um, do whatever we can do to incorporate their stories, their resources, their their tools, like all of the things that they have already built and then stretch into the places where they have described their pain and offer solutions there. So absolutely mm-hmm. customizing our trainings, um, our, our keynotes, um, we have uh, different programs like uh, toolbox talks and uh, micro learning videos where we add their QR codes so that the people who are viewing them or sharing them can be driven exactly to their web page where they get their you know employee assistance program or their health benefits uh, and and that's also been great because once they see. Uh-huh kind of their fingerprints all over it, their data, their stories, then again, it's it's hard to say that this is not about us. Yeah, there's no uh, such thing as a one-size-fits-all type of formula in this kind of thing, and you really, really have to customize it and work through it. So once you, once you work with that specific union um, and you feel comfortable to let them go, do you, I imagine that there's some communication for uh, some degree of time afterwards to make sure that everything is going smoothly as possible. Is that right? Well, there's a, it's a relationship, and it, and it evolves over time. So usually what comes through the door first is sometimes there's been a loss. You know, there's been a tragedy or a near miss, and people are shook, and they, they want to address something right away. And so we're going to give them that right away thing uh, to mm-hmm. start the process where the momentum is. But usually there's a lot of other pieces, and we look at what we call upstream, midstream, and downstream approaches. So upstream are things are like, what do we need to do to change the culture? so that people don't have to die in isolation and despair? What do we need to do to change how people feel and think about proactively reaching out when they're having a mental health 
small problem that's emerging and not waiting until it's catastrophic or like we say, stage four mental health emergency, how do we change the culture? And then midstream is what do we need to do so that people can get a buffet of options, not just one, but a buffet of options when they are ready to take an action step. So is there uh, is there therapy, but is also that maybe get them to a 12-step group or maybe get them to bereavement support if they have lost somebody? How do we give them that buffet of resources in a way that seems trustworthy to them? What kind of training, what kind of self-screening might we do? Um, what kind of peer support program might we build? And then downstream is when, when there is a mental health emergency, like a, a suicide attempt or death or an overdose or a near miss, is, is that local ready? Do you have policies mm-hmm. in place? You know exactly what to expect when you reach out to the crisis resources. How do you provide grief and trauma support when there has been someone who's lost? So that's kind of the arc of the whole spectrum of things. Um, the other piece that we try to do is, of course, we never want somebody to be reliant on an outside entity. That's not sustainable. So we really work to build capacity with inside the organization so that they can carry forward this work independently. So again, that's where the building up that formal peer support comes into place. We train trainers to be certified to deliver a training to their own people. Um, lots of little things like that, that they start to start to own this program and really um, customize it to their to their members. I can only imagine you get calls when something tragic happens. I mean, that's the way that's the way the world is. And they say, well, we'd better bring an expert in here. Probably it's best this being Suicide Prevention Week. They should contact you and have a program in place just when that day happens. So they're prepared for that. Are, are unions are is anybody doing that right now? Dr. Sally. Yeah, more and more. And that tells me that we are reaching some culture change milestones because if, if we're only getting calls after the tragedy, people are still being very reactive and we want them to be right. proactive so that they don't have those tragedies. And so now that it has become, I would say, a hot topic, a hot topic with a lot of unions, once they realize the data were there, you know, there's a lot of problem solvers out there. There are also people who are trying to position themselves as the place to be good to work. And these are all parts of that equation. So now when we're finding that people are not waiting for the tragedy, thank goodness, um, but they're trying to really up their game. They're trying to be the first ones, the first ones to have you know, the formal peer support program in their state or the first ones to have uh, a specialized mental health resource for their people. Um, that's really cool stuff. When, when people start to uh, compete with each other on who can do mental health stuff better, bigger and more, it makes me very happy. Um, so that's what I'm seeing moving forward is that this work is going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to strengthen. We're going to figure out some nuances. For example, um, you know, one of the things I learned from the first responder work was it wasn't your everyday mental health professional that could do a good job. In fact, it was often uh, a huge bummer for the firefighter to go to their city's EAP and meet with a provider who knew nothing about fire service. And so what emerged out of that probably three, three decades ago was that psychologists that specialized in law enforcement or specialized in firefighters started to emerge. And I see that as the wave of the future for a lot of our industry work, because, again, yeah. building that trust, you've got to know a little bit about these industries for you to actually be able to serve them well. Exactly. Exactly. Good conversation here. Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. Definitely check her out online. SallySpencerThomas.com. Okay, we got a pretty good audience here. And I want to tell you, we're doing really well with our podcasting. And maybe maybe another show we could talk about your podcasting as well. But uh, uh, you better be ready for some more people to contact you. Is, is it best to go to the website? Because we got a lot of trades that listen to the show. Is that is that the way to go right now, Dr. Sally? 
Yeah, that's probably the best. Just, yes, AlexSpencerThomas.com. If you are a construction trade person, we've got ConstructionWorkingMinds.com, and that'll give you all kinds of other cool stuff specific to construction, including our summit that's coming up in February. All kinds of great stuff. Good stuff there. Well, thank you so much for your time and your dedication and passion on this issue. I know this touched you personally, and I know you're very committed. And I'll tell you, we uh, we need you. We really need you uh, because there's a lot of people that are hurting out there. So thank you so much for joining us here on America's Workforce, okay? Thanks, Ed. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas on suicide prevention coming up next. A tribute to the late Tom Conway, General President of the United Steelworkers. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. The Alliance for American Manufacturing is a nonprofit, nonpartisan partnership formed back in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers. Their mission is simple strengthen American manufacturing and create new private sector jobs through smart public policies. Keyword there is smart. We need to be smarter than ever in today's highly competitive world. The Alliance for American Manufacturing believes that an innovative and growing manufacturing base is vital to America's economic and national security, as well as providing good jobs for future generations. Good jobs today, good jobs tomorrow. Good American jobs. Find out more at AmericanManufacturing.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at Teamster.org. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craft Workers. For more information, please visit BACWeb.org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. Now, back to America's workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be a WF Union podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. What we're doing here is uh, replaying some of the most downloaded shows of America's workforce, and one of them was a tribute that we did here on the show to uh, Tom Conway, the president of the United Steelworkers, who passed away in the fall. And in early October, we uh, what we did, we compiled some of the interviews and some of the things that he wrote about over the years. And this was one of them. Let's listen here on America's Workforce. Today we're doing a special tribute to the late Tom Conway, who passed away at the age of 71 last week. Tom, for four years, was president of the United Steelworkers. Great supporter of America's Workforce and also a great writer. This was an op-ed that he wrote not long ago about the importance of a first contract. Listen to this. James Golden 
knew the crowbar wasn't the right tool for the job, but it's what the bosses provided when he needed to perform work on a piece of equipment at the Como Tire Plant. This is in Mason, Georgia. Well, the crowbar slipped from Golden's hand and smacked him in the head, bleeding yet unable to find adequate help on the sparsely staffed night shift. Golden drove himself to the hospital while a supervisor agonized over whether to fill out paperwork about the injury or try to get the machine operating once more. While the memory of that night still infuriates him, Golden takes comfort knowing that he and his 325 co-workers now have the power to protect themselves, look out for one another, and hold management accountable. Along with wage increases, better work-life balance, and other wins, the workers gained a real voice on the job when they ratify their first contract with Como as members of the United Steelworkers. Well... The contract establishes a Labor Management Workplace Improvement Committee, affording Golden and others on the front lines the means to address issues like turnover, efficiency, and quality. The agreement also mandates a Joint Health and Safety Committee, giving workers not only a say in how to properly operate and maintain equipment, but a role in developing emergency plans and input into other aspects of plant safety. Golden said it's a new day referring to the power of a first contract to level the playing field and afford workers a seat at the table. This, he said, is the law of the land. Tom goes on to say, workers who want to band together for better futures often face prolonged and brutal anti-union campaigns from employers hell-bent on holding them down. Como, for example, committed such egregious violations of workers' rights that an administrative law judge at one point ordered company reps to call a plant-wide meeting and read a statement acknowledging their illegal conduct. Solidarity means everything, said Golden, recalling how workers met at bars and cookouts to build the union drive and support one another during management attacks. I know each of us was going to have a better work environment and a living wage, he added. Explaining his own commitment to the effort, I have no problem sacrificing for the greater good. I'm a veteran. I sacrifice eight years to go and serve my country. Workers ultimately achieved victory in 2021 when the National Labor Relations Board certified their vote to join the steelworkers, making them the first U.S. tire workers to unionize in more than 40 years. But then... Like all union members, they immediately began a new battle at the bargaining table, testing their collective resolve all over again. When bullying fails to stop workers from organizing, many employers simply shift gears and try to thwart bargaining. More than one-third of companies use anti-union attorneys to derail negotiations, and a quarter threaten to close workplaces in an effort to sabotage contract talks, among other abuses. This according to new research by Cornell University. Starbucks' dirty war on baristas, for example, includes starving union leaders of work hours in a bid to make them quit and dragging out negotiations with the aim of gutting solidarity, frustrating workers, and killing the union. Well, Como, the tire plant, bogged down negotiations for two years, balking at raises, nitpicking language, throwing up other roadblocks, but, but... Union activists stayed the course and worked hard to engage new hires, averting the threat that turnover poses to collective strength. Christopher Burks, who served with Golden on the Workers' Bargaining Committee, said, We did not give up. 
noting that a grievance procedure and other protections from bullying are among the first contract's greatest strengths. Similar concerns have prompted growing numbers of workers across numerous industries to unionize in the wake of the pandemic, and now those organizing victories are generating a wave of first contracts with transformative changes. That is especially evident in the South, where more and more workers are rising up against employers and right-wing politicians who long conspired to oppress them and keep unions out. Nurses at Mission Hospital, Asheville, North Carolina, secured a first contract in 2021 that affords them a long-overdue voice on the staffing issues crucial to worker and patient well-being. Workers at a Coca-Cola consolidated warehouse in Kentucky ratified a first agreement last spring, providing a much-needed grievance process and other enhancements. And newly unionized cleaners at Virginia Commonwealth University just negotiated historic pay increases, forcing the school to begin valuing them. You're not getting what you're worth for the job that you do, Burke said of many workers in the South, noting that some companies deliberately locate in the region. Why? To exploit the historically poor wages and low union density. Some people are waking up and not going for that. Just like Bluebird, he added, referring to about 1,400 workers at the Fort Valley, Georgia bus company who voted in May to join the steelworkers and seek better working conditions. Many other workers also want unions and gain a voice on the job, but they need the support that only a long overdue modernization of America's labor laws can provide. And right now, companies on a regular basis obstruct organizing and bargaining. Why? Because it's so easy for them to get away with it. Workers' unfair labor practice charges takes months or even years to resolve. Even then, employers like Como face virtually no penalties for illegally firing workers during union drives or dragging out those talks. Golden and Burks want Congress to pass the Protect the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, which would make it easier for workers to exercise their will and impose fines on employers who break the law during union drives. It would also force employers to the negotiating table and impose mandatory arbitration when employers refuse good-faith bargaining for a first contract. And Burks wraps up saying, I think it would finally make the employer respect your rights. Again, this was an op-ed posted by Tom Conway on the Steelworkers website. And today, we are paying tribute to Tom Conway. And this is a segment that we recorded about uh, two years ago where Tom talked about Joe Biden being the most pro-union president he ever worked with. Look, this this administration, to me, is is like something we've never seen before in this country. And their willingness to reach out to middle class, working class America and work out and reach out to a unionized working class, recognizing that unions and having a labor agreement means you have a better middle class and people live a better life and unions on premium pay 13, 14% more in wages. And there's some sort of a pension and there's some sort of reliable health care. And you have the ability to sit down and collectively bargain in a system that works and has worked well in the country. And so I think Biden is behind this, not because he particularly likes unions, although I think he, he sees them, he sees this, as an important component 
of rebuilding a middle class in America and focusing on middle class people rather than the ultra rich and and corporations who are sort of writing the rules. And and so I think they understand they got to rewrite the rules and they got to work with people who are working for a living. And I, I, it's such a refreshing change in government. And um, and every you know, they have this sort of whole of government approach you hear out of the administration. And I do frankly see that personally on a daily basis, whether I'm talking to the Department of Energy or the Department of Transportation or the Department of Defense or, or any one of those agencies, they all have, they're all singing from the same songbook and they're reaching out, asking us, all right, what, what do you think we ought to do? How do you think mm-hmm. we ought to handle it? And I mean, it's so uncommon and it's so new. And I think every union member and, the, and, and your listenership needs to understand that this is not just theater. This, this administration is actually doing that and working at it and working at it seriously and diligently. I, I couldn't express it more. This next segment with Tom Conway goes back to June of 2022. And this was in Philadelphia at the AFL-CIO National Convention when uh, Tom nominated Fred Redman as Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO. My name is Tom Conway. I'm the president of the Steelworkers Union. I'm surrounded by our family today, and we're all so proud to make this nomination of our brother, Fred Redmond. This is an amazing story of a man who can trace his ancestry back on both sides, his paternal and maternal families, to slavery, and who can move up through the years, and whose family moves to Chicago, and his dad works jobs sweeping floors and pumping gas and, and building a future for his family. And his mom travels on three buses a day to clean homes for other people. And during that time, they raise their family together. And as a young teenager, Fred and his siblings and his cousins travel back to Mississippi to work on the sharecropper farm that his grandparents work on other people's property and literally pick the field and pick cotton so their grandparents can survive and thrive. And Fred learns work and the value of work and the value of family and the value of labor as, as he's a, a young person. Fred has just been... Um, so much more than a colleague. I mean, we, we've come up together through the union and really just well-deserving of this opportunity. And he's going to be able to do a tremendous amount of work for this platform together with Liz. So, yeah, it was very proud for us. I had all the steelworker delegation with me who stood there at the mic and we made this nomination together. And, you know, we're looking forward to changes in the AFL-CIO. I think this team is is set to do a lot of good stuff. I mean, I think they have good, clear understandings of the challenges facing the country's labor movement. And and the whole way that work is thought of and, and, um, and how the country seems to have really sort of learned a lot, particularly coming through the pandemic, about who is doing work and who is making the country run and who's just sort of keeping things on the rails 
every day. And, and I think, um, I think we're heading in the right direction in terms of that and how people perceive the value of unions and, and particularly young people as well. So yeah, we were thrilled. I, I think labor has to sort of, um, do do a better job. Do a good job at, at explaining to young people. Uh, there's there's a big shift going on in the economy. The baby boom generation is 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 in large part retiring out, and there's a there's a labor shortage that's out there, both due to this you know what they call the Great Resignation, but there are fewer labor market participants, and so this is a time for labor to sort of take advantage of that and tell their story and explain to people really there is a value in in collective bargaining and in being able to together talk to your employer about your arrangement at at work. And and there's just, um, you know, it's it's been, it's been decades of, of just the, the policies of trying to crush unionism and, drive down um, people's ability to earn decent living wages. And this resulted in wage stagnation in our country. And so there is a, a good chance here to turn it around. And, and the goal of a million people over 10 years is not unrealistic. And I think it's going to take uh, unions working closer together, not sort of in strife or in a competitive spirit with each other as as much as may have been some past times and forming a strategy going forward about how to reach out to people and get them to see the value of this. So right. I, I, I think she's, you know, on the right track here. So once again, in tribute to Tom Conway, some past segments with Tom here on America's Workforce. To button up this show today, I want to read another comment from Dave McCall, who is now the president of the United Steelworkers. Dave said, from his earliest time making steel to a steady hand leading us through the darkest days of the pandemic, Tom followed two simple guiding principles, the dignity of work and the power of working people. Tom was never afraid of a fight, and thanks to his ingenuity and determination, generations of workers can enjoy better jobs and brighter futures. Rest in peace. Tom Conway. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, New Year's Day, Cecil Roberts, the president of the Mine Workers and the general president of Labor's International. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.